Well, if you take your Bibles with me, let's turn to the book of James again. James chapter number four is where we are going to uh, spend our time and kind of conclude our short series together. It's been a real joy to be able to be with you. It's been a joy to just open up God's word um, and to be able uh, to share it with you, to spend time um, examining God's word. But it's also been a joy um, to, you know, minister together, um, to be able to get to know people, uh, to play games together, to rub shoulders, have conversations, just uh, so thoroughly enjoy um, that opportunity and the time to be able to spend. I only wish to do it more. Uh, uh, really appreciate uh, the camp. I uh, appreciate uh, Pastor Phil and Pastor Dave and just um, all that they do in setting uh, the spiritual uh, temperature here um, at IRBC. Uh, it's also been uh, such a great joy to minister uh, with these guys over here. Uh, and so it's uh, such a blessing, genuinely, um, to be able to get together as a pastor, even with other pastors, uh, that you don't know, but you are, uh, that you have everything in common with, right? Um, and to be able to laugh together, uh, to be able uh, to minister together. Um, and so that is a, a really a special privilege. And I know that not everybody gets that uh, that privilege, and I want to uh, just make that very clear and voice it uh, and be thankful to the Lord for it. Um, as we uh, spend uh, really our last time together here in James, um, I have been seeking to establish the contrast between the wisdom of this world that comes so naturally to us and the wisdom that is sourced in, the wisdom that acknowledges, the wisdom that prioritizes God. God is not like us. Isn't that a blessing? Uh, he is not like us. Uh, we are not like him. And so it's challenging to think like he does. It's even more challenging to maintain that mindset. Have you found that in your life? Uh, it's one thing to be able to spend time in God's word and to be able to shape our minds according to his, but then to maintain it, to keep it throughout the day, to keep it throughout the week. Um, that is a challenging thing. The wisdom that God offers for us in the book of James uh, goes a long ways to recalibrate us uh, to a number of practical concerns. And the wisdom of God is nothing if not practical. And the passages we're going to examine this evening, or the passage that we are going to examine, um, it calls us to submit our will to God. Uh, and this submission of our will is kind of a normal expression of belief. So in some sense, you would say, okay, I did that at salvation. I don't need this message. And I would say, I, I think we all do. I need this message. I really firmly believe you do too. Um, because this submission of our will to God is not a one-time endeavor. Would to God that it were. But God in his wisdom has said, no, that's not best. So I retract the would to God. <laughs> because his way is best. And so this constant coming and surrendering of our will to him is a necessary thing. It's the very thing we're called to do when we're saved, but it should be a continual action. It should be a, a habit that we develop in our life. Uh, and what James does is he calls the believers here to submit their will to God. Um, we're going to start in verse number 6, but if you look in your Bibles at verse number 1 through 5 and just kind of briefly 
run through it, you'll see that James is, is really charging those who are reading his letter to remember that they need to be friends with God and therefore not friends with the, with the world. And James would say the two are mutually exclusive. You cannot be a friend of God and a friend of the world. Man, that kind of shocks us, doesn't it? And you'd say, no, 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 that's what I've been taught all the time. I, okay, I know we're taught it, but yet that reality is something that is a shock to our system. And so James is laying that out for them, and then at the tail end of that, right after that, we enter into our, vo- our verses. And so what we want to focus on then is what James calls them and us to do in the passage. So if you follow along with me, James chapter 4, uh, verse number 6 through 10, um, as I read this for us. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Man, that's some powerful preaching. That's James going after the congregation, right? That's James saying, listen, you need to listen and heed this important principle. So how are we going to organize these kind of terse commands? As we look at this passage of Scripture, how are we going to draw out the central truth of this passage and let it have its full weight? Well, let's consider um, that these verses have bookends. So look at verse number 6 and 7a. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then you look down at verse number 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So one of the things that we ought to be doing as Bible students, um, as people that desire to let the word of God speak into our lives, one of the things we ought to be doing is to let the text tell us uh, what it is intending to emphasize. And so here you have two bookends. Verse number 6, all the way through 7a, and verse number 10. And they, they put a frame around some central commandments within it. Um, so what are uh, those central commandments? Okay, so here's those two bookends. But he gives more grace. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Well, here are the three kind of couplets Because in the middle, you have these three couplets of matching commands. Uh, And so we can very easily then break this out um, into these three ideas. In 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 the Greek, the language is even more clipped. So you almost have this staccato approach where it's just like this pounding um, into you. You have a bookend, and then he is saying, resist the devil, draw near to God. And then he says, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be wretched and mourn, let your laughter be turned to mourning. And it's just like pounding it home. And then at the end, what does he say? Again, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So our central command is to submit to God, to humble ourselves before God. And dear friends, this is not actually an easy thing to do, but it is 
necessary. You know, we live in a day and age where humility is really not probably considered to be a virtue. Um, where if somebody is humble and meek, that people are going to look at them and they're going to view them as genuinely uh, somebody who is unwilling to stand up for themselves. Um, all we have to do is look at what the world defines as strength to ultimately see that humility is not high on that list. The truth is that that has always been the case. Um, we could go back to, and I, I just think about, oh, I don't know, Twitter? <laughs> uh, and all of the ways that it demonstrates, even in our political society, um, what people value and what they see as strength. Um, and the reality is that that has always been the case. We could go all the way back um, to uh, politicians before. Um, I remember reading how Winston Churchill was reviling a political opponent at a press conference. Do you ever get sick of that nowadays? But it's been that way, right? And he was just attacking, Winston Churchill, attacking this political opponent. And a reporter interrupted him, asking him, he says, but surely, Mr. Churchill, you must admit that he is a humble, modest man. To which Churchill replied, he is a humble man. But then he has much to be humble about. Well, that's, that's tweetable, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I would get a lot of retweets, wouldn't it? I mean, you could throw that out on Instagram and, and you know, you'd make a few waves. I mean, you know, this, but this has always been the case. And so we look at that and we see it around us, but I would also suggest uh, that as much as we see it outside of us, doesn't this attitude, have you ever sensed this attitude creeping into your life, into my life? This attitude that maybe humility isn't where it's at. Where we come to that point where we need to see our pride more clearly. My will versus God's will. I need God's wisdom from above. Not the wisdom that surrounds me. I get bombarded by it. But I need God's wisdom to lay open for me genuine truth. So the wisdom from above gives meaning to our will. And we're simply asking the question, how do we submit to God? Um, submitting to God, submit to God, he will give more grace. Uh, and so we see here in this passage, these three couplets, and I want to break them out this way. Submit to God relationally, submit to God actively, submit to God entirely. And let me just talk about them, and let me uh, phrase them slightly different, because I'm just going for meaning here. Um, so you can certainly write them down in the blanks, but then think about it for a moment. What I'm really suggesting is that we're submitting to God in two primary ways, two primary concepts. We need to submit to the person of God. That's the first concept, right? Submit to God relationally. But then we also need to submit our person to God. And those are the last two concepts. Submit to God actively and submit to God entirely. Um, this idea of actively is submitting to God in action. This is our will. The idea of submitting to God entirely is submitting to God in our mind and emotion. And so there you have the three parts of the person, right? Uh, and I would suggest that this is, is, is essential for us. All aspects of the person, the mind, the emotions, the will, they're necessary for genuine submission to God. And so we see this concept. I put it in three because we have three of these couplets. But we could put it in two if we wanted to capture that concept. Now let me just park here a moment. 
uh, and consider this important command. Uh, because this is not our, our normal method of you know, understanding or operation. Um, and um, let me pick on Grant a little bit, because why not, right? Um, and it, it really isn't much of a picking on him. Uh, but let me try to illustrate this, because I think it's, it's really important for us to capture this idea. Um, when Grant was, was small, and I think you can, most of you who are parents here, and that's like a lot of you, uh, most of you, you can relate to this, right? Um, so when you have your small little youngster, and I remember Grant when he was small, um, and we would go to like a water park or something like that. And water parks are a great delight, but you take uh, that little youngster and you stick the floaties on him, right? Um, and he's out there in the little wading pool, and what does he want to do? What does he want to do? He wants to go deeper. Uh, and if, if it's uh, like a bigger pool and the waves are coming in, um, you see those waves coming in, and you know, man, he's going to get swamped. Uh, you know, he's just going to get, this wave is going to come crashing over him. And you're faced with a choice as a parent. And what's that choice? The choice is either let it happen uh, or pull him out before it. How many of you would say, man, you let that happen? You let that happen. How many of you say, you do not let that happen, and you can seriously think, think about turning somebody in who would let that happen? How many of you would say that, right? Maybe not the latter. But you would say, I would never let that happen. I don't let that happen. Well, I'm definitely in the let it happen camp. Uh, and so you, I, I remember times, you know, we had, you know, little Grant out there, and you see this wave coming, and he's all happy, and he's, everything's going wonderfully, and here comes the wave, and you're just waiting there, and you're watching, and bam, it takes him down, and he comes up, and he's spitting and sputtering, and he's crying, and I'm laughing, <laughs> and you're like brushing stuff off, and... And then he's a little scared, and you're like, no, go, go on back out there. You can do it. It's all right. It's all right. Why would you do that, right? Why would you do that? To teach him. You know, one of the things we do as parents is we desire our children to develop independence. Amen? Do you want your children living with you for life? Should we take a vote? How many want your children to live with you for life? How many of you say, no way? Now, now listen, we, know, we love our kids. We love our kids. But it's not healthy. It's not healthy, right? It's not healthy to live with you for life. Um, now, okay, there can be certain scenarios. You say, well, listen, I'm offended. If somebody gets out, walks out right now, I'm going to feel real bad. Um, you know. Uh, but, you know, there might be certain scenarios where, um, you know, it's, it's a different kind of situation. Something like that could actually be the right thing to do. But in general, what do we as parents want to do? We want to raise our children to grow up and to be on their own. We want them to be independent. And I think one of the things that we do as believers is we take that same mindset and we apply it to our Christian life. And sometimes we do that intentionally, sometimes we do it unintentionally. You say, what are, what are you talking about? So here's, here's what we do sometimes. Um, is ultimately we look at what God is doing in our life and we think he is training me to be independent. But he isn't. God doesn't want you to be independent. You cannot be independent. You have to be dependent. Do you believe that? What God desires is that we live in a relationship of continual submission 
and dependence on him. Boy, that flies in the face of America. Where we say we ought to stand on our own. Where we say we need to be, you know, able to do it by ourselves. I should be able to make my own decisions. And this is totally contrary to that. Because this says, listen, you cannot make your own decisions. And God never wanted you to. He wanted you to depend entirely on him. He doesn't want you to stand on your own two feet. He wants you instead to submit to him. And dear friends, I would like to lay out before you and just call you to that concept. I know it's a big concept, but just capture what I'm saying. I'm arguing that the wisdom from above calls us to a life of continual dependence upon God. And that is what he wants. And then sometimes we say, well, listen, I keep trying to live on my own and failing and I feel bad about it. (laughs) And I would say, but then... God calls you to come to him and depend on him. That's his desire. That's what he wants you to do. And he said, but I feel like a failure when I have to keep coming back to God. And I would say, you're missing the point. It's what he wants. It's how he designed us. We weren't intended to live life on our own. So our submission to God then is not a sign of failure as if we could potentially one day not need to continually come to God in repentance and submission. As if God watched us fail and then just stood there looking down at us just shaking his head and said, man, he'll never learn. Because God actually knows that we won't. And what he's doing is changing us piece by piece, step by step, until we come one day to the point that our sin nature is eradicated. But it won't happen in this life. And so he calls us to this continual habit of repentance. And far from being something that should scare you or frustrate you, it should delight you. Because that continual dependence upon God is the proper attitude for a believer. So verse 6 tells us, but he gives us more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. A strong call to submit to God. So let's consider uh, these couplets that we find in this verse. Number one, submit to God relationally. This is submitting to the person of God. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 7b, it says, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Uh, The question here that he's wrestling with, he's just coming off those first five verses. With whom will you be a friend? We're talking about a personal relationship. Submitting to God relationally. Both Satan and God desires to befriend you. And at least on the surface, it looks like they both desire for you. And the question is, to whom will you turn? And James makes this personal by contrasting the person of Satan and the person of God. Resist the devil, and he will flee for you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Do you see the connection there? He's talking about a personal relationship. Who are you going to follow? Satan or God? That's what he's calling us to. Now this is an interesting command. uh, Given the other commands in James and throughout the New Testament to flee temptations, right? Uh, Many times we're told flee temptations. But here he says don't flee but resist. Resist the devil. Man, that's interesting. 
We're told to remain in place uh, in order to fight the devil. Now, when those temptations are strong, we're told to leave. But here, we're told to resist. Three, uh, even though there, excuse me, even though there are times that we ought to flee temptations, Jesus himself actively stood against the devil, didn't he? Think back to that temptation in the wilderness. He didn't flee, but who did? Well, eventually the devil, didn't he? That as Jesus stood firm against Satan, eventually who left? Satan. Man, isn't that powerful? And that's so good for us, because I don't know about you, but kind of the last thing I want to meet in a dark alley someplace is a fallen angel. That doesn't sound good to me at all. Because I'm not equipped to fight a fallen angel. But through the power of the Spirit, I have nothing to fear. But God says, resist the devil. And Jesus shows us how. How did he stand against the devil? How did he do so? He did so by what? Scripture. We know that. By connecting himself to God himself. Again and again, Jesus put the argument even in the temptation, into terms of his relationship with God in contrast with his relationship with Satan. So I want you, we're not going to look at the passage, but I want you to access in your brains uh, that temptation scene that we find in the Gospels. And I want you to think about this from a relational standpoint where Jesus is not just resisting in open or a bland temptation. He is actually making a relational choice. Okay, so think about it that way. Uh, temptation number one. What was temptation number one? What was it? Turning the stones into bread. And what did Jesus say? Um, he says, don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh, the mouth of God. And it's a beautiful picture because he's quoting Deuteronomy. Uh, and Deuteronomy, they were in the wilderness. Um, and you have this whole same kind of scenario that's there. Here's Jesus in the wilderness, um, and he is as well being tempted to decide whether or not to follow what Satan is calling him to do or follow what God is calling him to do. He's talking there uh, about this decision of who he is going to follow. Satan, in essence, says, Jesus, you are hungry, and you are the Son of God. Do something about it. And Jesus says, I'm more interested in choosing my father than in choosing you. My father told me to wait and rely on him. And so that's what I'm going to do. And so he tells him, I don't live by bread alone. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He chooses his father over Satan. The second temptation. Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. What a temptation that must have been. Because all the kingdoms of the world, that's the very thing that God had offered Jesus, right? Uh, and, and so he has this path to achieve those kingdoms from not God, but Satan. And Satan says, hey, I have all these kingdoms, and all you have to do to get them is to fall down and worship me. Uh, and he says, all you have to do is to choose me over God. Worship me, I'll give you those kingdoms. And Jesus says, I choose my Father over you. Because he says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him 
only shall you serve. Now what a massive thing that was. Because do you remember what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you remember when Jesus knelt and prayed and sweat, as it were, great drops of blood? And he asked if there's any other way. And what did Satan do? Satan said, here's another way. All you have to do is choose me. And I'll give you the kingdoms. And Jesus knew what was coming. And he says, I'm going to choose my father even though the cross is hard. It's a relational choice. Third temptation. Again, we can frame this from this position of submission. Satan brings him up to the temple. He says, cast yourself down from the temple and the angels will catch you. They'll be, everybody will be forced to admit that you're Messiah. And Jesus responds, what? He says, do not test or tempt the Lord your God. In other words, don't be presumptuous with God and attempt to force his hand. This is why we should all wear seatbelts. Amen? Because we shouldn't be presumptuous with God. It's the same kind of idea. Jesus saw this as a clear choice between choosing God or choosing Satan. Where he says, don't tempt God. Would God keep Jesus from being crushed or bruising his heel or whatever it might look like. Of course he would. Of course he was. But Jesus says, I'm not going to put him to the test. Why? Because he's my father and I choose him, Satan, not you. And so this became a submission that was all about personhood, about choosing which person I am going to follow. And what happened when Satan was rebuffed time and time and time again, when he was rebuffed three times, he couldn't take it anymore and he left. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But then he gives the positive. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Boy, hasn't that been a balm in your life? At times where you feel that distance between you and God, where you, where you are burdened by your own sin, your own lack of faithfulness, and you look at all of this, this work that you have, the work of your life, and you think there's no reason that God should want anything more to do with me. And yet you're reminded of James chapter 4, where it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a tremendous blessing this is. Both Satan and God stand with open arms, but Satan's is deceptive. God is genuine and loving. He's looking at us with these eyes of compassion and love. So how do I submit to God? I need to consider God as a person and relate directly to him. My choices in my sin are personal. You say, I keep trying to fight against this particular sin, and we view this sin almost as separated from the person of God. And I'm doing all that I can to say you need to connect it to the person of God. Your sin is a personal affront to God. Do you remember David, Psalm 51? What did he say? Against you and you alone have I sinned. What about Bathsheba? What about the guy he killed? What about Israel in general? But it was personal. And he drew near to God. And God drew near to him. This is crucial for us. It's the first call to action. Submit to God relationally. Secondly, submit to God actively. Actively. This is 
submitting to God in action or our will. James 4, 8, the last part. He says, cleanse your hand, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now let's recognize that James considers both the external and the internal. What does he say? Cleanse your hands. Cleanse your hands. Now these are people who are, you know, steeped in Judaism, right? And so when they hear cleanse their hands, what do they think? Ritual cleansing. Ritual cleansing. Of course, they would think that. It's the first thing they would think of. Cleanse your hands, you're sinners. But then he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Man, that sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. <laughs> and so you have all of this externalism of Judaism, but then you have the heart that Jesus struck at. And so here's James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is a believer, and he's following Jesus, and he says to these Jewish believers, you need both. And we're reminded of those, what Jesus said, right? Those whitewashed tombs, but inside are bones of dead people. And it's like, that's what we don't want. Because it's really easy to be externally clean and internally dirty. And that holds true for all of us. I think we have time for a little camp story to illustrate this point. Being at camp, you have me being at camp. It brings back a lot of memories. And I remember when I was a counselor at Northland, um, and I was um, just passionate about trying to get into the lives of the kids. I was just really, really focused on it. That was my desire. Um, I prayed about it all the time, and I was looking to just get into the lives of the kids. And I had this one a junior age kid. I don't remember how old he was. Uh, maybe it was fourth, fifth, sixth grade, something like that. Um, and he was a mess. Uh, and he was a rebellious kid, and he was just a huge problem child, but my heart was so burdened for him, and I just wanted so deeply to see God do a great work in his life, and I just had this, this desire to see God just change this kid's life, and maybe it was a, little, a bit naive, I admit that, right? I was young, but I was like, man, this is a week, and we've got a whole week for God to use his word to change this kid's life. And I was just praying and earnest and just pouring into this kid. And this kid was fighting me tooth and nail. And so he kept doing everything he could to get into trouble and to fight against me. He was rebellious. It was horrible. It was horrible. And so he kept getting himself in trouble after trouble after trouble. And finally, he was that close to getting kicked out. And in fact, he probably should have been. And I remember going into the camp director's office with this kid. This is, the, this is the only time this happened to me the entire summer, right? And I sat down, and the camp director looked at this kid, and he said, do you want to be here? And the kid goes, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I was like, oh, man, he's gone. He said, well, if you don't want to be here, I don't think you should be here. And I'm like, hey, listen, it was Jeff Call. I go, Mr. Call, I said, can I just speak in his behalf? And I just, well, just poured out my heart. And I was just like, man, this kid needs to be here. And, and I really want to, you know, and at the end of it, I'm, and he goes, well, I'll ask him again. Do you want to be here? And he goes, yeah, I think I do. Uh, and I was like, yeah, maybe this is the moment. Maybe this is it. This could be the time. 
And I was like riding this like emotional, spiritual wave. And I thought, this is, I mean, we're going to see this happen. And, and so I'm super excited. And I'm taking this kid and we're going to go down. And it's like, hey, it's swim time. You know what? Um, we survived the ordeal. Let's go to swim time together. And I go down to swim time and I run into the water. And all of a sudden, bam, I get hit in the back of the head with a rock. And I look over and the kid's looking at me. He's got another rock in his head. He's just grinning. And I'm like, that's it. Let's go back to Mr. Call. And we shipped the kid. He went home. And you say, why are you telling that story? Here's why. Here's why. Outwardly, he said what he had to. Inwardly, there was no submission. I was so blind, so driven by my own desires that I was unwilling to really recognize it. In fact, I was so unwilling to recognize it that I took a rock to the back of my head to figure out that this kid was not interested in changing. But you know what? Let me ask you this question. Where are you at in your will? Is it possible for a believer to harden their heart so much to God that outwardly everything looks good, but inwardly you know that you're tossing a rock in your hand and you have no desire to change. I would say, dear friend, if that is you, then you are ignoring this command from Scripture. And I want to plead with you James pleads with you. Submit to God. This is why he cries out with such passion. Cleanse your hands, your sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What is purity? Purity applies to that that is unmixed, untainted. That which is single in its devotion and actions. And so this is that second call to action. This means that any outward sin we turn away from and we seek forgiveness from God, of course. But it also means that we do so internally. We cannot merely pretend that our hearts are pointed towards God. And friend, you know. I know you're at a family camp. I know you've spent money to be here. But you know where your heart is. And I want to call you to surrender it to the Lord. Won't you purify your heart for all that Jesus has done for you? Are you really going to stand in resistance to him? Please surrender your will to the Father. But James isn't done yet. He says submit to God relationally, submit to God actively, but then third, submit to God entirely. Entirely. Submit to God in your mind and your emotion, James 4.9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Well, that sounds pretty dour, doesn't it? So let me start then with some clarity, perhaps a warning. There is a serious call for emotional distress in regards to our sin. But we need to make a distinction between honest distress of sin and a life or pattern of depression. Uh, and distress as a believer. That, that it's not calling us to say, this ought to be your continual state. Right? 
Oswald Sanders, in his book, Spiritual Leadership, he has this to say about Christian laughter. He says, should we not see that lines of laughter about the eyes are just as much marks of faith as are the lines of care and seriousness? He goes on, is laughter pagan? We have already allowed too much that is good to be lost to the church and cast many pearls before swine. A church is in a bad way when it banishes laughter from the sanctuary and it leaves it to the cabaret, the nightclub, and the Toastmasters. And dear friends, I believe that. Uh, that we do need that laughter as well. What James is calling for is not to be walking under this, this continual cloud of depression and distress, right? I am a sinner, and I need to never laugh again. That's not what he's talking about. He is talking about um, looking instead um, at this, this idea of mourning and weeping over our sin. Mourning and weeping, it describes the condition we ought to experience when we fall into sin. And that concept um, is, is the kind of concept that is captured really well with what he says next. Uh, what he says first, be wretched and mourn, and weep. It's a command to lament. And if you said, Pastor Steve, I want to submit to God, but I have a hard time engaging my emotions that way. I used to care about sin a whole lot more. Can I just encourage you to spend some time lamenting? To get serious about thinking about the consequences of your sin. Dwell upon how horrible and wicked your sin is. You say, that doesn't sound like a good time. No, no, it's not a good time. But it is good. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Have you ever heard of the book of Lamentations? <laughs> and what is that all about? Being wretched and mourning. Well, you think about that book. Three of the poems are funeral dirges. Three of them. Three of those chapters in Lamentations. They're, they're funeral dirges. And they, they open with the customary wail, How? <laughs> and the other two poems are cast in the form of a, a lament or a complaint. Chapter 3 in Lamentations, it's an individual lamentation. Chapter 5 is a community lament. And, and four of those five poems are alphabetic acrostics. It's a fantastic piece of art. And it's all focused on this terrible thing that has happened, the fall of Jerusalem. And so you have in the Bible a serious book that says, look at things that are horrible long and hard because they're horrible. And it's really good for us to do that. And friends, we need to do that with our sin. That we look at our own sin in the same way and we recognize it for what it is. We feel its full weight. And if you say, I've gotten so accustomed to my sin, it barely bothers me anymore, then I would say, spend some time considering how wicked your sin is. And that's going to bring into sharp relief how glorious God's grace is. And so this is James' command to us. That's why he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So how are we supposed to submit to God? We are to think and feel rightly about our sin. We're to hate it. We're to weep about it. We're to turn from it. That is how we submit to God. 
And then let's return to that other bookend. Verse number 10. He says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourself before the Lord. He will exalt you. You know, the wisdom of the world might cause to win at all costs. Our 21st century human icons, they're, they're not religious figures, but those who have been really kind of strong enough to claw their way to the top of the, pi, to the, top of the pile. Sometimes in our minds, it doesn't matter how they got there. That's the wisdom of the world. Win at all costs. The wisdom of the world sometimes calls us to be independent of God. I address that. Independent of God. And we grow tired of dependency upon him. But James says, don't embrace the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world might put us in a place where we feel like God has somehow wronged us. And many Christians have a sort of private feud with God. They sit down with Jonah under the withered vine and they mutter, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And we don't. That's the wisdom of the world. You know, during his time on earth, Jesus repeated this concept three separate times. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, we are not to passively wait for this to somehow happen. It is a command. It's a command from our Lord Jesus. It's a command from James here in James 4. So we should not wait for someone else to humble us. We should not wait for God to bring a crushing circumstance around us to bring us to that point. Self-humbling is our Christian duty. The gospel teaches us this truth, and the gospel is enough to keep us in this position of humility. We are called to take an inventory of our sinfulness, our weakness, and then in total submission, bow before God and yield up our total being to him, our dreams, our future, our everything. And then we wait upon his grace, and because of his relationship to us, he will pour out that grace. Hey, dear friend, are you far from God? Or are you close to him? Just answer that right now in your own hearts. Are you far from God? Or are you close to him? That has to be a personal thing. If you were looking at God right now, if he was directly dealing with you, how would you answer that? Are you far from God or close to him? Are you living with the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God? Are you now right now, in the position of complete submission of your will to God. If I talk about this, and if you're resisting this in your heart, or the Spirit of God is bringing up something specific right now, I'm just going to encourage you. He is doing that in order to bring you to that point that you give it over to Him so that you will draw near to Him so that He can draw near to you. And if you won't do that, at the end of a week of family camp, what hope do you have? Isn't now the time to surrender to God? And you might say, everybody looks at me and they think I'm surrendered. But I know in my heart that I'm not. Then do business with God this evening. Perhaps you have never submitted to the Lord. And you listen to this message and you listen to all the messages and you feel the tug of the Spirit of God calling to you, pleading with you, oh, dear friend, won't you turn to Jesus now and be saved? Saved from your sin and saved to an eternity with God himself. Boy, if there's a way that I can help you, if there's a way any of these pastors or uh, Pastor Phil, Pastor Dave, any, any of the staff, if we can help you, people that you know and love, please talk to somebody. Open up. Share with them. They will come alongside. 
They will help you. But let us be a people that submit to God. Let's close together in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to spend this time in your word. We thank you for how effective and powerful your word is, and we rest in that. And Lord, we desire to be a people that live in a state of complete and total dependence upon you. That, Father, that's what you have actually designed us to do. You call us to do that, particularly in the state of sin that we now live. We need ye. We need you every hour. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. That if there are people here tonight that need to surrender something to you, that they have been holding back, they've been resisting, that by your spirit, Father, you would draw them to yourself. That they would finally bend their knee and surrender to you even tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.